Welcome to the Farcast here at Shadron State College. I'm Daniel Binkert with my co-host Alex Helmbrecht, and we're here with Justin Curtis, an assistant professor in the Justice Studies, Social, Social Sciences, and English Department. Now, Justin, first of all, before you tell us a little bit about your background, you're also going to want to tell us which one of those programs do you teach in? <laughs> I'm in the Social Sciences program. All right. Yes. Well, good to have you here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? Sure. So um, I was born on the East Coast in Maryland, but mainly I was raised in the Phoenix area in Arizona. I lived a brief period in southwestern Colorado in a small town called Cortez, um, which is kind of the only memory from my childhood that makes me feel at home in Shadron. Um, The town of Cortez was a lot like Shadron, actually. Um, But then I went to, I got my undergrad degree at Brigham Young University in, in Provo, Utah, um, and then went to graduate school in Tucson, Arizona, at, at University of Arizona. So this is your first year at CSC. Mm-hmm. What's it like to start in the midst of a pandemic? And, <laughs> and, and did you teach anywhere else prior to arriving here in Shattern? Yeah, so I did teach a little bit as a graduate student, but I'm coming here straight from graduate school. So this is my first full-time faculty appointment. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how to... S- compare, I guess, the experience of, of the pandemic versus not the pandemic, since it's the, my only teaching has been in masks, really. Um, but I, so the, what I always think of is at the very beginning of the fall semester, there was a lot of worry among the faculty, among everyone, you know, about what the semester is going to look like. Are we going to be here for the whole semester? Are we going to go back online? What's it going to be like to teach in masks? Um, are we going to be safe? Are we going to all get sick? You know, um, and my, I have two kids, um, they're 18 months and four years old, and they're both big fans of Daniel Tiger. And Daniel Tiger has a song that goes, you, it, um, now I'm not, not going to remember it. Sometimes you feel two feelings at the same time, and that's okay. And that's how I felt in the fall. I, I was like so nervous, worried about the pandemic, about what teaching in the pandemic was going to look like, but I also was thrilled to finally just be able to teach full time. Um, and for the most part, the thrill has over, has overwhelmed the fear and the worry. Um, and so I'm excited to know what my students look like. I I don't recognize them in the community anymore or ever. Um, but I've loved teaching here, like masks notwithstanding. Um, yeah. I, I have noticed that anonymity that, that masks provide, you <laughs> yeah, know, if that's you, see, nice. some, if totally. you <laughs> see someone you're vaguely familiar with, uh, you know, at the grocery store or something like uh, pre-pandemic, you may have felt the urge to say, hey, how's it going? You know, how's, how are things? But then you're like, I don't think I recognize you or it could yeah. be someone completely different. And I've often been mistaken for someone else. So I, maybe I look like a lot of people here in town. I'm not sure. But but you're exactly right. Um the fall, the beginning of the fall semester, and now we're midway through the spring, mm-hmm. but the beginning of the fall semester felt very different from the start of the spring semester. Um, even from a communication standpoint, we did a lot in the fall. Mm-hmm. In the spring, everyone's kind of used to this. They understand what's going on. Yeah. And, and so um, it's really a testament to, to how well uh, faculty, staff, and the students have all kind of worked together and to make sure that we do stay here on campus. Yeah, I've been, I've been phenomenally impressed by the students. I, um, you know, especially in the fall, you heard stories of universities around the country kind of reprimanding their students en masse 
um, for not abiding by, you know, COVID protocols and not wearing their masks properly and things like that. And like the, the students at Shadron need more of a like kudos for never, I have never felt the need to do that. There's an occasional time, you know, pull your mask up over your nose, students wearing masks that are too big. Don't know that that's their fault. Um, but that's it. You know, I, I've been so impressed with the students here. Yeah. Yeah. Me as well. Well, Justin, uh, switching gears a little bit, I understand your research focuses on politics in a, the Muslim-majority world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What's going on over there? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so that's a, yeah, that's a big question. Um, I, I, I guess I'll start with my dissertation research. Um, my dissertation research was on um, Islamist political movements and, and kind of Islamist political mobilization. So is, Islamism is a political ideology that kind of connects the religion of Islam to politics in a variety of different ways. It can be pro-democratic, and in many countries, it's kind of the main pro-democratic movement, or many Muslim-majority countries. Um, but it can also be very authoritarian, right? Think Sudan, think Iran, think the Taliban, um, and everywhere in between. And so um, my kind of big question going into the project was, um, what do, what kind of features of a country, political features, um, incentivize violence and authoritarianism among Islamists? And what features of, of a country incentivize um, more democratic kind of um, movements and democratic ideas among Islamists? Um, and what I found was mainly kind of when... It, when Islamists have the opportunity to govern at a local level, close to their constituents, decentralized, um, they tend to look like pretty normal political actors, um, maybe, you know, maybe like a center-right party in Europe or something like that. Um, but when they are threatened by a big centralized authoritarian power, they're going to respond in kind. Um, but the, that, that kind of violent extremism that we often think of as kind of quintessential among political Islam is mainly a reaction to a much longer legacy of secular authoritarianism, monarchy, populism, uh, military regimes that have plagued Muslim, the Muslim majority world for, for a long time. Um, and, and that kind of complex dynamic is really what motivates my research, it, you know, trying to, to, to figure out, try, trying to kind of de-essentialize Islam and political Islam in particular, um, and, and really understand that, that there are lots of people who kind of see Islamism and Islam more broadly as the key to democracy and progress and human rights and things like that in, in the Muslim majority world. And that's a narrative that I think Americans don't encounter very often. Yeah, I think the more we, the more we can learn, especially here in our part of the country, I mean, we don't have a lot of a lot of Muslims uh, right. uh, around to 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 learn from. So yeah, the, the more we can get from it, the better, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And that's that's where I want my research to go, um, ultimately, especially kind of embracing the place of Shadron State. Um, I, I really want to understand perceptions of Islam, but also kind of broaden to perceptions of minority politics broadly in, in rural America. Um, I think that there's a lot that, that we could do to try and better understand diverse lived experiences, um, probably everywhere in the world. 
So Justin, what are some of the classes that you've taught here so far and, and, and what do you hope your students learn? Yeah, so the, my kind of core class is Political Science 101, which is Introduction to Political Science. Um, and I, I, I taught it for the first time in the fall um, and I'm teaching it again this spring, or th you know, this semester. And um, the, the responses that I got from lots of my students in the fall were, you know, I thought we would spend a lot more time talking about the election. I thought we would spend a lot more, and, and we spent some time talking about the election in the, in the fall, we couldn't avoid it. Um, but I really want my students to have a global understanding of politics. And so introduction, so for example, my students on Friday have an exam where our case studies have been the United States and the United Kingdom and Israel and Indonesia. And they've been learning about what democratic politics looks like in those four countries. And it looks very different in those four countries. And I want them to understand that democracy looks different around the world. Um, we're going to turn to authoritarian politics and we're going to encounter authoritarian politics around the world. And we're going to think about um, what features of authoritarianism might explain pieces of American politics um, and pieces of illiberal politics in, you know, quote unquote, democracies around the world. Um, but I really want my students to have a broad understanding of politics. So that's kind of the core of what I teach is that 101 course. Um, but I've also taught American politics courses where we spend, you know, obviously, our time focused on the United States. Um, I I'm currently teaching an international politics class, um, which is looking at, rather than kind of what politics looks like within various countries, but how do countries interact with one another? What does war look like? What causes war? What does trade look like? What causes cooperative trade agreements? Things like that. Um, and then I'm also teaching a, a, a grad class online um, where we're focused specifically on understanding the process of democratization, so why countries become more democratic over time. Um, and we're looking at the United States in comparative perspectives. So we focus on the United States, but we draw evidence from lots and lots of countries around the world to try and understand that process of democratization. Oh, that, that sounds all really interesting. And I'm glad that you didn't focus just on the election, because I, I think your students, much like a majority of the American people, probably would have been burnt out. Huh? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I felt burnt out about it, and I didn't even teach about it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it was omnipresent. Yeah, and, and um, mentioning, I think you mentioned the UK. I've mm -hmm. always been, not fascinated, but I've always been intrigued by by their form of government, because, you know, with the, everything with the, uh, the royal family, yeah. and then uh, you also have prime ministers and all these other, and then I can remember being a kid, and uh, one of the few channels my grandparents had was like C-SPAN, but every uh -huh. once in a while they'd show the I, I don't, question time. Yeah, I don't, the, I don't know the, I don't know yeah. the right name, but it's like the, it was like their form of government in in Britain, and so just like the, these, the parliament. Yeah, but the yeah, par and these, yeah. uh, it's just these old guys yelling at they one yell another. at each other constantly. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. It was really funny. <laughs> yeah, I um, I I really like especially the parliamentary system. It's so foreign to, to people who are only, a, only acquainted with American politics. The idea that the prime minister is not elected by the people, that he or she is chosen among the legislatures. And, and what that does is create um, you know, a, a kind of clear line of accountability in government where the voters elect the legislature, the legislature elects the government or the executive branch. And so if you don't like what the government is doing, you vote for someone else in the legislature, and that's how you change it. In the United States, it doesn't work that way. We vote for the president and we vote for Congress. And if we don't what, like what government is doing, 
well, Congress is going to blame it on the president. The president's going to blame it on Congress. And it's unsure who we should hold accountable come the next election cycle. Um, and just that, that tiny little insight into, into the difference between those two regime types, um, I, I hope kind of gets my students thinking critically about how democratic is the United States? How do we hold our leaders accountable? How do we figure out who should be accountable? Um, how do we kind of weed through the, the propaganda or the party messages and things like that to really figure out what our politicians are doing and whether or not they're representing us? Mm, good point. So Justin, you would say government is different than politics, correct? Mm, yeah, and if absolutely. so, what's the difference? <laughs> and how do you recommend having civil conversations about government with those who have different views? Kind of a multi-part loaded question here. Probably, yes, and probably one he's never been asked before. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, those are both great questions. Although, yeah, they are very di separate questions. Yeah. I'll try to answer the first one um, first. So the difference between government and politics, government, um, technically government is people. Government is, the government is the people who are in charge of really the executive agencies. Um, that's confusing in the United States because we have a presidential system. And so we think of Congress as part of government and the executive branch as part of government. But really the executive branch is the government, right? The, the president, his cabinet, the bureaucracy, the people that, that are enforcing and executing the laws are the government. Um, often we use that word to mean like the rules of government, the institutions, the constitution, how elections work, things like that. But they're, they're things that we can't really argue about. We can argue about their efficacy, but, but they're just kind of what exists. Politics is you know, a, a, a kind of explanation of power structures. And often um, there's, you know, a normative side to politics. There, there's, I believe that, um, you know, or, or person X believes that politics and power in a, in a society should be structured in a particular way. Person Y believes it should be structured in a different way. And so politics is where conflict comes from. Government is, is, is just empirical. But politics is where conflict exists. And so really, I think that the, 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 the answer to the second question is, is really about having civil conversations about politics, having civil conversations with people who are inevitably going to disagree about what power should look like in a society. Um, I, I will just echo um, one of my favorite political scientists. Um, he's a, a, a scholar of American politics, and he focuses on the founding um, at Brigham Young University. His name is Jeremy Pope. But his advice for this is two things. Number one, be empathetic. Um, recognize that, especially kind of in the context of American politics, where there's a lot of division, recognize that we are all Americans. We all want what's best for the country. That can be something different. We can, we can disagree on what best means. Um, but fundamentally, we're trying to help one another. Um, and I think that that's very true and very forgotten in, um, in much of civil discourse. And the second is be aware of your partisanship or our partisanship. Um, it's totally okay to have a social identity that's built around a political party. And in fact, it might be advantageous sometimes, right? Parties simplify the political world. They make it so you can rationally participate in politics without knowing everything there is to know about politics. Um, 
And so it's okay for a Republican to always vote for Republicans because you can trust more often than not probably that the Republican Party is going to represent your interests. And the same thing for the Democrats. But you should be aware of the limits of your partisanship. You should be aware of kind of the need to speak truth to your friends, speak truth to your party. The senator from, from Nebraska is the perfect example of this, Ben Sass. Um, he is ardently conservative. Um, I think he's deeply, I, he's deeply religious. He's deeply ideological. He has very strong beliefs. Um, and he's willing to speak the tr his truth to people on the opposite end of the aisle and to his friends on the right. Um, that's what I think good politics looks like, good civil discourse looks like, is standing up for what you believe in, even if you're standing up to people in your own party, and maybe even especially when you're standing up to people in your own party. You know, no knowing that there is a limit to your partisan loyalty is, I think, really, really important. So, so you mentioned <clears throat> um, partisan loyalty and the two-party system a couple different times. Yeah. Um, how did we get to that? Did, was <laughs> was that uh, you know when when the Constitution was 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 ratified and all these things happened with the yeah. with the American form of government? Um, was there partisanship then? What was there? Um, it, it wasn't a two-party system, I don't believe, but um, pretty how, did, how, how did we get there? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on the founding, but I can talk a little bit kind of about the evolution of the party system in the United States, and it pretty much has always been a two-party system. Um, and so the, the founders initially, especially when they were writing the Constitution and in kind of the lead-up to Washington's first term, were very worried about they called them factions, but kind of divisions within society that could turn into a majority that could repress the, or suppress the rights of any minority. And that could cross-cut in a million different ways. They were most afraid of it in economic terms. So they were afraid especially of, well, in the North, they were afraid of farmers as an economic class suppressing their vote. In the, in the South, they were afraid of business elites as an economic class suppressing their political rights. Um, and, but, but the, so the, the kind of foundation for a two-party system or the logic of a two-party system is cooked into the institutions of the United States. Um, the, the, the simplest uh, explanation is it's because our Congress, every single member of the House of Representatives, for instance, represents one district uniquely. We, do, we don't have multi-member districts, right? The, the Nebraska third is represented by Adrian Smith and no one else. And Adrian Smith can win that election by 90%, or if there were three candidates running, he could win it with 34% and still be the only representative. That single member district system incentivizes the creation of two parties that are roughly equally matched to kind of compete for what's called the median voter, the voter right in the middle of the ideological space. And so the two parties are gonna try to converge on that median space um, to win a majority of the votes, 50% plus one vote. Um, and so that's kind of the logic of the, the two-party system. But I think that the, in the United States, the two-party system is m even more like culturally institutionalized than just that. That we tend to think of politics as one side or the other side. 
Um, and, and, and the founding that emerged really even before the Constitution was ratified across the states, there were the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. After the Constitution was ratified, there were the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians. And if you've seen the musical Hamilton, you kind of have a sense for, for what that looked like. Those two figures were the leaders of the Federalist Party and the Democratic Republican Party. Um, and ever since then, you know, there have been times where a single party dominates, and through most of history, or most of American history, a single party has dominated um, politics. So the Democratic Republicans dominated for a long time. Um, the Republicans dominated after the Civil War. The Democrats dominated after the Great Depression. But today, the two parties are essentially equally um, matched with one another. The president flip-flops, you know, since Reagan, really. Um, the, the Congress tends to, um, at the first midterm, switch parties to oppose the president more often than not. And so we have two roughly equal homogenous parties pitted against one another. And what that does is it creates the sense that there are two teams and my team is good and the other team is bad. Um, and now I've probably stopped answering your question, but, but that's kind of where we're at in contemporary politics is everybody thinks of their party as the good guys and the other party as the bad guys. And so even if there were institutional reforms to try and make third parties more competitive, I don't know that they would actually work in the United States. We are kind of so um, committed to one party or the other party. Even people who identify as independents tend to, when, when pushed, lean to one party or the other and, and just support one party. Um, and so uh, really, I, while kind of the foundation of the two-party system is probably institutional, now it's baked into our, our political culture. And is that rare in the world? Is it unique? Um, so most countries that have um, single-member districts, the United Kingdom, for instance, um, have a, a broadly two-party system. Um, I, I think in the UK, there's probably eight parties represented in parliament, but at the, at the district level, only two are ever competitive. Um, so like um, in Wales, there are Welsh nationalist parties that sometimes compete with national UK parties. Northern Ireland has its own slate of parties. Um, Scotland, there are nationalist parties that compete with Labour and the Tories. But at the district level, there's really only two competitive parties. Um, the, because of kind of how decentralized the, the system is in, in the UK, they've created regional parties. For some reason, there's never been a regional party in the United States. Um, I don't have a good explanation for that, um, other than federalism, that, that that we have state legislatures, and so we don't need a regional party in uh, the national government because the Democrats in Arizona look very different from the Democrats in Massachusetts and their state legislatures. So they adopt the same party name, but they're really two entities. Um, but so, so broadly, the, the relationship between single member districts and a two party system exists everywhere. Um, and places where, where um, legislative seats are allocated more proportionally tend to have more multi-party systems. Great. That was a wonderful explanation. That was. <laughs> I hope like it wasn't it. too boring. No. <laughs> Outside of academics, you've lived in Russia, and I, I'm, hopefully I'll get this name right, 
Tajikistan. Perfect, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about those experiences. Probably uh, sure. kind of different than Shattern, I would imagine. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, a little bit. So um, Russia, I, I, I lived in Russia with my wife right after I graduated college. Um, my wife, Jessica, she um, was the kind of principal, I guess, kind of the, the, the leader of an English teaching school for children in, in the city of Voronezh in Russia, which is about like an eight-hour bus ride from Moscow, south um, from Moscow. Um, and so we lived there for about four months, like kind of a semester, essentially. Um, I was one of her teachers. There were a few other people there that were her, her teachers. Um, but for us, for her and I, it was kind of a free trip to Russia. Um, we had to teach, you know, half a half day, four days a week or something. Um, but then we got to tour around. Um, her Her... Father's side is originally from Ukraine, actually not Russia, but but um, the Slavic world, and and she, so she feels like a deep connection to, to to Russia and Ukraine, and so she was the one that kind of uh, inspired the, the whole trip, and and it was a blast. Um, we were there, kind of in, for as a political scientist, this is what I thought was interesting, but we were there. Um, it would, it was 2015. We were there right after, um, Russia invaded, um, Eastern Ukraine, um, during the Ukrainian civil war, right after Russia annexed Crimea. Um, and all of that was happening. And it was very interesting to talk to Russians about that conflict, to talk to them about Vladimir Putin, um, and, and to just kind of get a sense for what, um, Russia is like. I think we have, not not dissimilar from the Muslim majority world, we have a very, I'll just say biased, kind of understanding of what Russian politics looks like. Um, we tend to think of, we probably tend to think of it just like an extension of the Soviet Union, a totalitarian regime where everyone is loyal to the leader, and if they're not loyal to the leader, they're killed. That's not the way it is. Um, they, Vladimir Putin is profoundly popular, but he's popular for, I think, rational reasons. I don't necessarily agree with his popularity, but but he's doing the things that the Russian people want him to do. In that sense, he is broadly representative of, um, of Russian interests. Um, and and just kind of as a side note, Alexei Navalny, who kind of is the hero of the of the West, is deeply hated kind of almost universally in Russia. Um, he, he is not a popular candidate. The idea that he's Vladimir Putin's biggest opposition is silly. The Communist Party is, is Vladimir Putin's biggest opposition. Um, but so anyway, it, I mean, it, it was a blast to be there. It was very cool to kind of just ingratiate into the culture. We, we traveled to, to um, St. Petersburg and it was bitter cold, even though it was like April. And then we traveled to Sochi and it was, I, I couldn't believe that they had Winter Olympics there. It was like, it, it, I've never been to Hawaii, but pictures that I see of Hawaii looked an awful lot like Sochi, Russia. Um, very almost tropical, green everywhere. Just absolutely beautiful. Um, so that was my time in Russia. Um, as a graduate student, I, I studied the, the Persian language um, and wanted to spend a lot more time, I wanted my dissertation to be more kind of centered around Iran, that evolved after my time in Tajikistan, but um, I lived in Tajikistan to study Persian. Uh, they speak a, a particular dialect of, of Persian there called Tajik. Um, and so that was like my purpose in being there. Um, 
but the experience was really eye-opening. Um, so Tajikistan is a former Soviet republic, so in lots of ways it shares a culture with Russia, um, but it's predominantly Muslim and shares a culture with the Muslim-majority world. Um, and that kind of split identity is, is interesting in and of itself. Um, but while we were, my, my favorite story to tell <laughs> students about my time in Tajikistan is we were, um, I was with a few other Americans, um, just kind of relaxing at this like water park type place um, in, in the capital in Dushanbe. And they had some sand volleyball pits and we started up a, a sand volleyball game with some other people about our age. And we noticed that they, they were Russian. There's a lot of Russians there, but they all had like the same haircut. It was clipped really short. And um, we, we realized that they were um, members of the Russian military who were stationed in Tajikistan. There's a big, big Russian military base there. Um, and it was strange to see the Russian military enforcing the borders of Tajikistan and then playing beach volleyball with a bunch of Americans at the water park. Um, I, I can happily say that we won the match. Um, <laughs> but but a, a very, very interesting place. I, I don't know. I could talk about Tajikistan for a long time. Well, it sounds great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When you were uh, talking about sand volleyball, I was just like thinking of the scene in Top Gun. Or something. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, we weren't quite that muscular. Well, our side wasn't quite that muscular. But <laughs> uh, Justin, uh, tell us a little bit about your interests outside of work. I understand you play the drums. Uh, what I else? Do. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in a, a band kind of all through college, uh, toured around a little bit. Um, and yeah, well, you drumming. Gotta, you got to tell us the name. Oh, it's so embarrassing. The name was the Love Capades. Um, oh, beautiful. Thank you. Yes, yes. I've heard more embarrassing. <laughs> Probably, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, my high school band was Sonic Assault, which which might be more embarrassing, but I kind of think it's cool. <laughs> Is it a little too on the nose? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in one in high school, and our name was Brian Adams' cousin. So I, I think that <laughs> was it actually Brian Adams' cousin. <laughs> no. No, so I think your name Interesting. is Interesting. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, drumming has always been kind of a big hobby of mine. Since graduate school, it's become just a hobby. Um, but, but, yeah, I love playing the drums, and I finally, we finally don't live in a tiny apartment in Shadron, and so I have a drum set set up in our basement, um, which is a lot of fun. Um, beyond that, my, I mean, currently my hobbies are trying to figure out the best way to imitate a fire truck sound for my 18, 18 month year old son, um, and planning pranks against my wife with my four year old daughter. Um, in fact, currently there's a bowl of cereal in the freezer that she's going to serve to, to her mom as lunch today. It's one of her favorite <laughs> pranks is frozen cereal. Um, so those are my big hobbies outside of outside of political science right now. That's great. Yeah. Well, we've reached that point in, in the uh, interview where we do five quick questions. So oh, sure. the first thing that, that comes to your mind. Uh, and the first one is, what's a favorite movie of yours? Um, as a kid, I mean, and it still probably is today, Apollo 13. I, I love that movie. It's flawless. Um, I... Um, as a little kid, I was obsessed with the idea of space travel and going to space and going to the moon. And unfortunately, I get carsick almost instantly if I'm not driving. And so I could never be an astronaut. But um, but I love that movie. And I love thinking about the people making it and like uh, just just 
a great, great movie. Yeah, that that is, it is a really good movie. It, space terrifies me. Yeah, and, and I can imagine the dread that those those astronauts felt. But the fact that they made it back is incredible. Yeah, so Absolutely. cool. Yeah. Uh, Justin, what's your hidden talent? <laughs> I I really don't know if I, I really think that my two kind of greatest talents are um, teaching and playing the drums, and neither of those are hidden. <laughs> um, I don't know that there's there's something that like I'm really good at doing that I don't talk about. Yeah. I assume this means then that mom is going to just love it when you teach the kids drums, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yep. Hey, I, in fact, <laughs> in fact, my so my dad plays drums as well, and um, a couple of Christmases ago, my daughter asked for a drum set, and so we kind of put that up the line to the grandparents and um, said, "We just want like a little dinky toy. She just wants something to hit with sticks," and my dad just couldn't do it, so he bought her. I mean, they are full-sized drums, kind of in-depth, shrunken down so that a, a three-year-old can reach them. Um, and every once in a while, she'll just sit behind them and just hit and hit and hit and hit and hit. And I, I don't know that my wife was particularly thrilled with that <laughs> choice. I, I think she would have been more happy with just a toy with paper heads that were going to break immediately. And then we wouldn't have drums in the house anymore. <laughs> I imagine this is going to make the uh, family get-togethers just fantastic. When you get, you, get, you get three generations of the family going at it on the percussion. All playing the drums. You bet. Yeah. yeah. And not, not quite the family band that, that other people get to have. <laughs> What's the best advice you received as a college student? Um, there are two that, that I think were both really good. Um, the first one was from an economics professor who suggested that to all of his students that we find something not related to our major that we're passionate about. So, so in his example, so he studied economics his whole life, but as a college student, he loved architecture and just kind of became obsessed with learning about architecture and traveling the world to see different architectural styles and things like that. Um, and when I really embraced that idea, the, the passion that I uh, developed as an undergrad was the Persian language. Um, it was not connected to political science, really. Um, I tried to unite them sometimes, but, um, but I, I, that kind of, that made my undergraduate experience so fulfilling. Um, you know, when I, when I was struggling with a statistics class or, or struggling with an, an econ class or something like that, that I knew was like going to help me in the long run in my career or whatever, um, I just got to study Persian and it was a blast. And I loved the teachers and I loved the, the language and I loved the culture. And um, I, if I could tell, I, I would love to pass that piece of advice on to all of my students. The other one is, is maybe a little bit more pedestrian, but it, was, it has, I mean, its benefit has been overwhelming, um, which is when you're given a reading assignment, know why you're reading it. Um, I was given that, that, that advice from someone who was trying to teach me how to speed read. I never actually got good at speed reading, but, but kind of the principle of speed reading is just get the points and then move on, right? Um, undergraduates need to understand that, that like when they're given 100 pages of reading, for the love of God, don't read 100 pages. Like just get to know what the author is saying and get to know what you think about it and move on, right? Be prepared to talk about it. 
Um, and that was so beneficial as a graduate student, you know, when I was reading thousands of pages a week and things like that. Um, so I would love my students to, to embrace that idea as well. Very good. Well, speaking of reading, uh, tell us uh, a favorite book or a favorite author. Okay. Um, <laughs> my favorite book, um, I mean, it's too related to like what I do, but Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, um, which is about kind of the origins of nationalism in the world, is brilliant. Um, it's it's a, a favorite read. And I assigned a chapter of it to my undergraduates. And unfortunately, I think it becomes a least favorite read for many of them. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I just adore that book um, and the way that Benedict Anderson writes. Um, maybe in the realm, I, I don't read a ton of fiction. I have a hard time like just getting into stories. But I love the author Khaled Hosseini, um, whose most famous book was The Kite Runner. Um, but his most recent book, And the Mountains Echoed, is beautiful. Um, and he really has, I think, captured the, through story, like the identity of contemporary Afghanistan in a really compelling way. Um, so all three of his books are great, but I love And the Mountains Echoed. All right, Justin, the last one. I, and you haven't been here long, but what is what yeah. is a word that comes to your head when you think of Shattern State College? I mean, unfortunately, like masks. Like, you know, um, which <laughs> yeah, is, I have that answer. Yeah, that's like right. that's such yeah. a bummer answer. Um, I, but it, I mean, it is true. Like it's where I wear my mask more than anywhere else. And it's, um, mm -hmm. but I also think like, kind, welcoming, I don't know, I'm not particularly good with words, but, um, but I've been really impressed. I mean, it's unsurprising that the faculty and like the staff are, are extremely collegial and, and, you know, really fun to talk to, but even the students, like, or maybe especially the students, um, are welcoming and warm and and like the, the little conversations I have with students before class starts are always fun and and maybe they're not fun for the students but um but I I really enjoy kind of just getting to know what students think and and what they're experiencing and it's cool that because of the small class sizes Shadron State seems to um, easily create an environment where like relationships can be built easily. Certainly. Well, yeah. and I'm sure the, you know, being former students here, I'm sure uh, Daniel and I would, would have appreciated having a professor like you. So it's always nice to, to have <laughs> those types it. of conversations and kind of be seen uh, as, as peers almost. And then, and then, you know, then you can give us the, 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 what is it? The sage on the stage and all that stuff. But, <laughs> yeah, I don't but know. Uh, yeah. no, I think that's great that you create those relationships and that they're meaningful and, and yeah. the students here are certainly earnest and well-intentioned. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. It's been, it's been a, just a blast to see students coming from all over the country um, and feel at home in Chadron. Chadron, I think could be a place that is really weird for someone not from rural Nebraska. Um, but I haven't seen it that way for like through my students' eyes. They seem to all really like, like it here and feel at home and feel welcomed. And part of that is, I think, the culture of the community, but part of it is also the students, you know, really embracing where they are. 
Yeah, that's great to hear. Well, Justin, thanks again for coming on and joining us for the show. Thank uh, you. Great to have you, and we look forward to seeing you sans mask, uh, <laughs> yeah. hopefully in the fall. Hopefully yes. things will be a little bit Fingers closer crossed. to normal. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. Yep, thanks.